Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Lord, I ask now that your spirit would be our comforter, our guide, and our teacher. Lord, I pray that my words are your words. Lord, we're not here for accolade. We're not here to entertain. We are here to know you. to run after you, to leave behind what we need to leave behind. Lord, we symbolically bring our hearts to you. And we say, speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take a seat. Have you ever experienced losing something of value. How many of you lose your wallet? Like on a weekly occurrence? <laughs> Me? Okay, how many of you lose your phone? Where's my wife? I'm just kidding. Actually, I should say, where's my daughter? That'd be more realistic. Anywho, love you, girl. Um, or lose your keys. Like, those are my three things right there. And so I actually discovered, hey, I should get one of those cases in my phone that's a wallet and a phone case. So if I lose one, I lose both. Like, so anywho. But nonetheless, I remember a time when um, I was coaching baseball. It was 12U um, Little League, and we were at a tournament, and we had about a four-hour gap between games. And I thought, hey, instead of just sitting here, I might as well go to this golf course that is only 10 miles away. And I know that if I get in a cart and I golf alone and the course isn't busy, I could get done in about two hours. So I was like, let's risk it. Here we go. I go to the golf course, and sure enough, it's not busy. I get a cart. I get it all done, and I'm like speed golfing. I'm not paying attention. I'm having a hoot, even though I probably shot a horrible round. Didn't matter. I get back in the car, drive back to the tournament. Time to spare. I go to the concession stand to order a nutritious meal of a hot dog and Cheetos, and lo and behold, I have no clue where my wallet is. And I had a moment of panic and embarrassment because they're like, you know, sir, it'll be like $4. I'm like, 
uh, I don't, oh man, I lost my wallet. And you have that moment, you're like, this is embarrassing. And you're frustrated because you're embarrassed. And there's a sense of anxiety, like especially this time, because it's like, not only did I have the credit card, debit card, driver's license, for some dumb reason, I had my social security card in my wallet at that time. And it was all gone. And I'm like, what do I do? I'm going to have to start a whole new life right? You just have that moment. And so I was like, okay, I, I, there's nothing I can do. I called the golf course. I was like, did anybody find a wallet? And like, nope, nobody returned a wallet. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so coaching the game, I'm not even really paying attention to the game, to be honest, because in the back of my mind, I'm playing through all of the scenarios that could possibly happen. Game's over. I fly to the golf course, so embarrassed. Hey, did anybody find my wallet? No, sir. Can I get a cart? Please give me a cart. And they allowed me to get in a cart. And I just like surveyed the whole golf course over with a fine tooth comb. Didn't find it. I come back and the golf pro's like, is this your wallet? I'm like, oh, I could just kiss you. Thank you. Like you get that sense of relief, but yet you're so embarrassed. How many of you experienced that or have experienced that? Like you actually, like if you ever do it in the house, how many of you like, like turn into a house tornado? You know what I'm saying? Like pillows are flying, clothes are flying. People are like, watch out for them. They're mad because they don't know. And they start to blame kids because the kids took it. Of course the kids took it. I know you did. I knew I left it right here. Sure, Dad. Where did you put it? I didn't do it. Anybody or is it just me? Okay. I guess it is just me. I was studying this passage all week. And I know for some of us who've been in the church world for a while, like this is one of those stories that we're very familiar with. I want to encourage you to come to this passage with a blank slate. I want to encourage you to listen to some things in a different perspective because I think the way, and it's not like ill-mannered or bad intentions to other people. It's like we have a bad understanding of the word prodigal. And I want to talk about that the way scriptures talk about it, especially in the cultural context that Jesus taught us in. Now, full disclosure, I am just going to be honest with you. There's a lot of material that I'm going to cover today, okay? And I understand that most preachers, you've got to get this done in 40 minutes, but I don't feel like I'm, going to, like I'm going to honor that. I know I'm not going to honor that because I feel compelled to teach it all. And I need to teach this as one segment, not to break these three little parables up in three different teachings. It needs to be understood all together. So if you really, really, really need to get out of here at 15 after, don't do it. You can, you can give 10 minutes of your time, okay? I want to encourage you to stay with me because this is profound. Not because what I'm going to say to you is profound, because what Jesus does is absolutely profound. I want to share with you a word, and the word is prodigality. Some of you might be thinking, you just made that word up. I did not. I make other words up, and I make an excuse that it was the Greek, and you all believe me, okay? It's a pastor's trick, just letting you know. This is a real word. I had to look it up, because I was like, okay, I want to need to make sure I'm not going to look like a, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So I looked it up, and here's what this word means. It's an instance of spending money or resources. That could be your time, your desire, your thought life, without care or restraint, Prodigality means you're going to be excessive, to some degree wasteful, exuberant, excessive, reckless in your spending of finances, of your time, what have you. And here's the thing. Most of the time, the one who's doing it doesn't think it's wasteful. 
It's the ones on the outside looking in that consider it wasteful. So when we hear the story, the, the parable of the prodigal son, it's actually slightly misleading because we immediately put on like, oh, this is all about the younger son who goes out and spends all of his money with prostitutes. But we don't really know if that's what he did. That's just what the older brother does to slander the younger brother. The older brother doesn't know what he did with his money. But what we do know is that he was, he was a prodigal in how he spent it. But here's the deal. The older son was a prodigal too. He excessively spent his time serving his father to the T to make sure that he was perfect and right all the time. You owe me. You deserve me. But it's not just the younger son, nor is it just the older son, because what we're going to discover is that the father himself is a prodigal. The father himself is reckless with his love, extravagant with his love, excessive with his love. He wouldn't think so, but those looking on the outside, looking in, would say, that is reckless. Why would you do that? Prodigality. That's what we need to see here in this story. Now, before we get into the three little micro parables within the large parable, we have to understand the context and the audience. So important. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I'm a nerd for words. This is so important. Luke writes this gospel meticulously, choosing specific words. And this word now is to give us the sense of like, this hasn't happened before. Like the religious system like has not experienced this. But because Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God, now tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing those people, the ones that we instinctively judge, the ones that we immediately look down on, the outskirts, the ones who should be on the, the margins of society, the ones you don't want your kids to be near. Tax collectors were not like the Roman tax collectors or other Gentile tax collectors. These were the Jewish people who chose to rebel against the nation of Israel to buddy up with Rome so they can make some money. They were traitors. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Don't miss that. The audience, and we would immediately think that a good Christian or a good religious person, a good rabbi would immediately be like, stay a little bit away. I don't want to get polluted. I don't want to rub shoulders with bad company keep out there, that Jesus would accept them like, hey, tell me your name, shake hand, good to meet you, and that's about it. Now look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. That's the same word that's used of Israel in the wilderness anytime they rebelled against God. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against God over and over. That is a word that is just negative. And Luke intentionally uses that word. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. The word receive is absolutely beautiful because this is this notion of like, he's not just like receiving them as like a guest in his house, like, hey, nice to meet you. He's like saying he's actually opening up his heart for a potential relationship with tax collectors and sinners. 
He wants to be their friend, to walk alongside with them, to do life with them, to let them know that they're worthy of his love. Hey, I receive you. He receives them and eats with them, which in the Middle Eastern culture at that time, to eat or share a meal with someone was a sacrament of fellowship. And they were like, there's no way. They're like, why would he do that? They're grumbling against him. So... What we have here is we got three different things happening. You got Jesus, you got the irreligious, and the religious. And so Jesus, I love what he does in verse 3, he just simply tells them a parable. So he tells them a parable. I love the simplicity of that. The parable begins to be the word of God that is alive and active. It's like the scalpel of God getting to the heart, not just of the religious, but also the irreligious, because you got to remember, they're in the crowd. They're hearing this parable too. Oh my goodness, is Jesus going to turn his tune because the Pharisees are grumbling over what is he going to do? Is he going to placate to them and go, actually, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry, oversight. Guys, sorry, we're no longer friends. What is he going to do? He tells them this parable that's going to drive right at the heart. He's going to teach this parable to shatter their worldview and their perspectives of how they think God is and how God acts. They're going to, Jesus is going to tell this parable that's going to shatter how we see morality and the law and even relationship with God. He's meddling with them and he meddles with us if we're willing to be honest about our hearts here. So he goes on in verse 4. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. That's key. Until he finds it, dead or alive. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He's rejoicing from the moment he finds it to the moment he brings it back to community. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99, Jesus is being comedic here, over 99 righteous persons, which doesn't exist, who need no repentance. What man of you? Now, what's fascinating and what we need to remember is that to be a shepherd is not a noble profession at that time. Shepherds were looked down upon. They were the people of the land. Like, they were out there. They can't even come to the temple because they're dirty and they're filthy. We don't like shepherds or the scum. They're below our feet, all that kind of stuff. So when Jesus is saying this parable, what man of you? A Pharisee would be like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I might own sheep, but I'm not a shepherd. I would hire a shepherd, and if I caught wind that he lost a sheep, I would bring him in and say, listen, if you don't find that one, I'm going to fire you. Like, you can imagine this dynamic and what the Pharisees and the scribes are feeling and thinking at this moment. But there's another dynamic at play because immediately they're thinking through the economics of it. They're not, they're not connecting the metaphor of sheep being people because to have 100 sheep means that you're fairly wealthy. And more than likely, it was communal wealth. It was a community's wealth, not just an individual. And so they're going to weigh out the pros and cons, okay? If I go look for the one, that means I'm leaving the 99 behind. So, 
isn't the one expendable then? Because if I go after the one, what could happen to the other 99? What if I lose more or a, a wolf comes and hits the 99? So what man of you would go after the one instead of the one? They would say, none of us, because we would count that off as a loss. Jesus is flipping some things out. Not only that, Jesus places the responsibility on the shepherd, which is significant because in the Middle Eastern time, they would never ever blame themselves for this. So for instance... If a Middle Middle Eastern man in first century Judaism were to go to a train station and they were five minutes late and they missed the train, they would never ever say, I missed the train. They wouldn't say that. What they would say is, the train left me. They immediately just, they don't own it. So Jesus is breaking custom here of saying, the sheep didn't like leave you, you lost the sheep. Like, look at that, how he places the responsibility on them. What man have you have in our sheep? If he has lost one of them, they would never say that. They know exactly, they know exactly what Jesus is doing. These are Pharisees and scribes. They're experts of the law. They know the Old Testament, and they know, they gotta know, that somehow he's referencing some of those metaphors, prophetic metaphors of sheep and shepherds, specifically Ezekiel 34. Write that down. Read that chapter. Ezekiel 34. God gives an indictment on the shepherds of Israel. The priests of Israel who are to represent God to the nations. Also, two brothers and sisters within the house of Israel. And he says, you all are doing this to get fat for yourselves. You are bad shepherds. My sheep are scattered on every hill vulnerable to prey. You've left them and you're concerned only about yourself. And he's, he's just making this mass indictment, this judgment on them saying, you don't care about the lost. You know what Jesus is meddling here. He knows he's getting at them. Because in verse 11 of chapter 34, he goes, but I, I will find my sheep. So Jesus is kind of saying this parable, saying, oh, you're going to grumble against what I'm doing? I'm going for the sheep that you should be looking. Oh, by the way, it's the sheep you lost. That's what he's saying to them. And, he's going to, and, and the Pharisees and the scribes would be like, we didn't lose them. They lost themselves. But God's like, oh, way to skirt responsibility. I have now come to find the sheep. I have come to do that. You can feel that tension in that moment. You can always imagine like the tax collectors and the sinners just going, what does this all mean? Here's why this is important. Because the Pharisees and the scribes and any other shepherd would have said, we would not go after the one. But here's what God is doing. Here's what Jesus is doing. This is so important. I would love for you to write this down. If God doesn't go after the one, what does that say about the value of each person? If God doesn't pursue the one who is lost and writes it up as a loss, what does that say about the value of other people? Oh, I must not be important enough. Or they're expendable. Imagine being the 99 then. Like, oh, wait a second. Would he look for me if I got lost? 
Like, do you imagine, like, they just wouldn't feel secure in that moment. God is shaping and changing paradigms of how we see people. He's like, listen, everybody has value. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, nobody starts life out going, you know what I want to be in life? I want to be a tax collector. Nobody dreams of growing up to be a prostitute. Life has a way. Choices have a way. They're lost. And God's like saying, I need to find them. That's what the gospel is all about, friends. But the religious and the scribe, they're grumbling and they're complaining like, oh, why would he do that? The shepherd finds it. And I mean, this isn't a quick little look. Like I immediately go, he's like, oh, he walked a few 50 yards. He went around the corner and there's the little sheep right around the bush. But this is like implying it's like a day journey in the heat, in the rocks, dangerous. That's a cost. He's willing to take that risk. He's willing to risk the 99 to find the one. And he finds the one and he puts it on his shoulders, which is not an easy task to do. That's, that's hard stuff. And he's rejoicing. And as he's bringing it back into community, it's like this restoration of finding what was lost back to the community saying, let's celebrate. And he would have left that sheep there as he celebrated. And he would have went and brought the 99 back. Or what woman of you? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. He starts out with a hundred, one out of a hundred. Now he breaks it down to ten, one out of ten. And again, culturally speaking, peasant women would usually have like a scarf or a bandana and they would put their money in there for the day's wages or the week's wages and they would put it in there and they would tie a tight knot as their security. That, that was their purse. So the responsibility of losing that one of the coin, like it falls completely on her. And one coin represents one day wages. So 10 represents about a week and a half worth so she can provide food for her family. Imagine what she's thinking. Oh my goodness, what's my husband going to say when he comes back and he knows I lost that one coin? How silly of me. I should have tied that knot a little bit tighter. This is my fault. Oh my goodness. And she does everything in her power to flip that house upside down to find that one coin. And when she does, she's excited. She's relieved. Her embarrassment is past. Let's rejoice. Rejoice, and she calls people to rejoice. How much more do the angels in heaven rejoice, celebrate, and you're going to grumble? Whew. One in ten, now one in two. The sheep was lost in the wilderness. The sheep has a will of its own. This is representing those outside of the house of Israel, the Gentiles. And God's still saying to his people, you're responsible to still go after those sheep in the far countries, in the far off lands. Didn't you notice the one in ten? She lost the coin herself, an inanimate object in the house. Jesus is technically saying, you've even lost people in your own home. The tax collectors, are they not brothers and sisters, your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters? And you aren't even going to go after those in your own home? 
a father has two sons. Prodigality, excessive, reckless, exuberant, some would consider it wasteful. Look for it in this part of the story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Squandered and reckless prodigality. His father is wealthy for all intents and purposes of the story, and he has two sons. And culturally speaking, they understand how inheritance works. The older son gets two-thirds of the inheritance. So the younger son, they only gets a third. The older son becomes the patriarch of the father when the father passes. But all the sons carry the family responsibility to uphold the honor of the father. So the younger son does something that is absolutely unthinkable in this culture. Something so shameful, so hateful, and so incredibly wrong that even if you were to ask people in the Middle East today, how would you respond to this story? If the younger son came to you, they would say, shame, cast him out, sever the relationship, can't believe you, like it is a shock. You would not do this. I mean, legally, yes, third of the inheritance is his, but he has no right of disposition to it. He can't cash it in and do whatever he wants. It's his legal rights, but he has no control over it. I can imagine how the crowd around Jesus is just feeling. Like, it's just like, you don't do this. And they're probably expecting the father to do something radical to the son. This is the picture of humanity. And here's why I say that. The younger son, in effect, is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I have no use of you. I don't want to be underneath your authority. I don't want to be underneath your provision. I want what's mine. I want to make a name for myself. I want to do what I want to do. I want to pursue this and that and that. I just wish you were dead. That's humanity. That's how we all are in our sin. Let me go do my own thing. Here's something interesting. I never saw this before. I always thought that like the fact that he asked for that was actually a crime against the Mosaic law, but he doesn't break any of the Mosaic law here. Like there's nothing in Jewish law that would say that this is wrong. This is just what you don't do culturally. Like it's dishonoring. You can make a case that he's dishonoring his father. He's not honoring mother and father. Like you can make that case, but technically to ask for his inheritance is not a break in Mosaic law. But what he did do was break the relationship with the father and the community. This is a complete severed tie. There is no coming back from this. The community would make sure that this son could never, ever come home. He denied his true inheritance, which was the security of the father's love in the community. He goes off and he squanders. Like, think about this. Like, 
dad didn't just write a check saying, okay, fine, son, here you go, here's a million dollars. Lord bless you. Like, the wealth is tied up in assets. It's in property, real estate, and livestock. So it takes some time to sell that off. And since he wanted to get out in a hurry, he just took the first offer, which again was a massive blow to the community. But also, here's something that we miss that I discovered. I was like, Lord, this is so good, is that the audience around Jesus would have been, there should be two people who should not be silent in this moment. The crowd will be instinctively thinking, where's the older son at this moment? Because in Jewish culture and custom, the older son is now responsible to be the mediator to reconcile the father and the younger. Because the older son's responsibility is to honor the name of the family, to honor the name of the father. So he now carries the burden to be the mediator. And yes, it's a village, word spreads quick, people know, it takes some time to sell off assets to which you, no doubt, the older son knew what was happening, and the crowd's going, where's the older son? The older son doesn't want to reconcile. He's like, get out of here. He's also obligated in culture to pray God's blessings and for him to return home. But the older brother's like, good riddance. The other shock is the silence of the father. The father takes the blow. He doesn't say a word. They would have expected the father to disown the son. To say something to the effect, you are no longer my son. You are broken off from his family. You are broken off from his community. Be gone with you. To hell with you. But the father is silent. And the father's silence is what actually allows the father to remain a father. The father's silence is what actually allows him to still be a father. Which means he's holding on to hope that there may be reconciliation at some point. He's willing to take the shame and the humiliation and the insult from the younger son. He's willing to take on the pain and the agony of a heartbreak. He doesn't know what will happen to him. He doesn't know if he'll ever come back. But he's willing to hang on to that so that maybe, just maybe, there could be reconciliation at some point. And they're shocked at the father's silence. And then all we get next in the story is that the younger son is away. He squatters it in prodigality and reckless living. And we immediately think that he spent all his money on booze and women. But actually, that's not what Jewish culture would say. The highest value or the highest virtue that every Jewish man wanted was to be known for their generosity. So what they would say is, I was studying this in first century Judaism, I was like, man, what would they say in this moment? They were like, he was trying to make a name for himself. He was trying to impress people. The older son, we get that whole sin living just from the older son who's mad. We don't know if that's really the case. But it's more than likely due to custom that he was trying to make a name for himself. He was spending money to get people to see him in a certain way. Oh, don't we do this, church? 
We try to impress people. We try to finagle this way. If I get this house, I'll finally have this. If I get this job, if I get this relationship, I want people to see me this way. I want to earn it this way. I want to go about my own way. I want to make my own path. And then guess what? A famine will always happen in your life. It will always show itself as a mist. It will always show itself as hopeless for saving, hopeless to fulfill the desires of your heart. It will be vanity and fickle. And then you'll get desperate. And then you'll try to do something else to try to mitigate that. And that's what happens in this parable. He gets desperate, and so he starts to want to even just feed, work with the pigs, which no respectable Jewish person would ever do. And he's at the point of desperation that he's wishing he could at least eat the pig filth. Like, I read this, and I immediately go, man, why doesn't he just think, I could go home, at least I could maybe work off my debts. He doesn't do that at first, because he knows what's awaiting him. And here's what I want to share with you that we oftentimes miss in this, is that he knew that the moment he walked away with the father's wealth, and the moment he realized that he's bankrupt now, he could never come back home. And never have a normal relationship because in Jewish custom, they would, the, the village would never, ever allow him back in. They would have this ceremony called the breaking off ceremony. They would get a, a pot of clay and they would symbolically smash it outside of the gate and said, this is how you are with us. You can have no relationship with your father, with your family, nor with us. You have to stay outside of the gate. How many of you have sinned and wandered away so much that you've convinced yourself there's no way I could go back home? There's no way that God could love me. There's no way that God could forgive me. There's no way. And so in your desperation, you try to fix it even more. Totally me. I remember doing that. There's no way God would love me. And he comes to his senses and he comes up with his game plan. Oh, I'm just going to go and tell my dad that I've sinned against him. I did this. And maybe I could manipulate him to let me at least work as a servant. And I can maybe pay off my debt and show him that I have some value at least. And that way at least I could eat and survive. He's thinking about coming back as a servant, not as a son. And he's thinking that he can manipulate his dad to give him an opportunity and so he journeys back home. Like imagine what he had to feel. Okay, do I want to do this? Do I really want to face this? Do I want this? And then the story goes that the father saw him coming from a distance and he was moved with compassion and he ran. When I hear the word ran, for some reason I think of like a jog. But when we look at the word ran, the, the Greek word that, that, that Luke used is the word he raced. And I started to go, why did he race? Or who's he racing against? Now, there's a few things here. One, here's what we usually hear. No father, no old Jewish man would ever run, which is true. Most Jewish people, males, would not run after 25 years old. I think that's a great cultural thing that we should adopt. <laughs> Just saying. This dude's probably 60. He hasn't ran in like 35, 40 years. He, this bro is out of shape. But he sees his son off in the distance and he hikes up his robe, which you don't do. You don't show off your legs. And he's running, which means he's sprinting, which gives you the feel that he's competing against something. And I asked myself, who's he competing against? 
Have you ever done that like at a store or a parking spot? You're like, you're focused on, you're like, I got to get there. And then all of a sudden you notice someone else. You're like, I got to beat it. I think of like, he's racing against the village. Because the father also knows that the village wants to get to him so he couldn't get in. The father wants to get to his son first. He gets to his son. The younger son is overwhelmed by such love. There's no way in a million years that the younger son ever imagined that the father would love him, embrace him, and kiss him over and over and over. You know that the younger son is thinking that if I saw my father, it's going to be bad. I'm just going to have to take it. He's just overwhelmed with the father's act of love. He never, ever could have imagined it. He's so overwhelmed that he scraps his game plan. He scraps his speech and he says, I am not worthy to be your son. Which is like he's finally getting it. The father is saying, I know you're just my son and I love you. It doesn't matter what you think. I love you. You're my son. And also he says to the servants, which tells you that the village came out too. And around him he's saying, get the robe. Which is a restoration of fatherhood to the son. I fully receive him. He could do nothing on his own. Let me do it. We're going to clothe him with the very best. He's going to be back at the father's table, put shoes on his feet because sons and daughters wear shoes. They don't go barefoot. Servants and slaves go barefoot. Put the signet ring on him. It means he's got authority. He's going to have an inheritance again. Let's celebrate. Let's kill the grass-fed cow and smoke a brisket. Let's roll. He's so excited. And his son's like, okay. I mean, the son in that moment could have done something like, oh, no, oh, no, no, father, please don't. Please don't. He could have went down the self-pity thing, but he was so overwhelmed by God's grace, he just received it. Can you imagine how that younger son now lived the rest of his life? Oh, it's a joy to serve my dad. I love my dad. I can't believe, I can't believe he did that. You gotta know my dad. Oh, but wait, there's an older brother. Here's the commotion. Ask a little boy there. Hey, what's going on? You, you don't know? Your brother, he's home. And your father received him restored him, reconciled with him. Grace can be amazing or it can be completely aggravating. The older brother was so aggravated by such grace. He was so aggravated that he insulted and humiliated his father. You see, the father is willing to take on the younger son's humility and shame by racing out to him, by not casting him out, by not cutting off the relationship. He took on the shame. Friends, that's what Jesus did. He came to earth looking for us. This is the best picture of the incarnation. And the cross is him saying, I'm willing to take the pain. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to take your shame and your humiliation upon myself 
for you because there's nothing you could do because I want you to be restored and reconciled to the Father. So now you've got the older son who's shaming and insulting the father, and now the whole crowd at this party is going, what's he going to do? This should be now the word the father cuts him off, which, again, custom would say the father would now punish the older son and cast him out. But the story goes, the father goes out to him, which he wouldn't do at that time, and he pleads and he begs and he makes an appeal to his older son, which you don't do. The father is humiliating himself again, taking on the shame of the older son. This tells us that God loves indiscriminately. He loves the irreligious and he loves the religious. He wants all to be restored because the older son doesn't realize that he's lost. Yes, I kept the law perfect. Yes, I'm a good person. And yes, I've done this. And yes, I've done that. And yes, 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 yes. You owe me, God. And the father says to him, all that I have is yours. I've been a father here for you this whole time. You never took advantage of it. You just saw yourself as my servant. And all of a sudden, all you get is a cliffhanger. Jesus doesn't resolve the story. He just throws out the grenade. And he goes, what are you going to do? But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find the sheep. I'm going to bring the lost in. I'm going to find all the lost, irreligious and religious. And when we find them, we're going to bring them in. We're going to reconcile them to the Father. And all heaven is going to go nuts. Because that's what we're about. God was reckless. He was reckless. From those on the outside looking at the Father, they would say, you would never do this. You are being reckless with your name. You're reckless with your respect. You're reckless with your reputation. You're taking on all the shame. Why would you do this? You're dragging your whole family through the mud. But from the father's perspective, he says, it's worth it. Prodigality. Do you realize how much the father loves you? That he's willing to send his one and only son to look for you. When you wished he was dead, you wanted nothing to do with him. Even when you start to negotiate with God and you think that somehow you can bring something to the table, I can earn this, I can pay off my debts, I can do this, there's nothing you can do. Then all of a sudden you realize how unworthy you are. Do you see the love of the Father? Do you see why when we sing these songs like, oh, praise the name of Jesus, like we are so overwhelmed because it's the love of Christ. I can't believe he would do this. And when you received your salvation, you profess faith in Jesus, it's not what you would have thought. You would have thought like, oh, now I got to do this and this and this. And you're just like, oh my goodness, he just wants to be in relationship with me. And out of that love, I'm captivated by love. Now I want to do this because I love him. So I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have an application. Because Jesus didn't either. He left it as a cliffhanger. What will you do? How will you respond? He's such a master teacher that he knows that you are finding yourself somewhere in this parable. Right now, I know you are. 
And I trust the Holy Spirit enough that you and him can do work, that you don't need me to give you an exact application. So I want to encourage you right now as we sing this last song, talk with God. Give thanks to God. Maybe confess your sin to God. Maybe return from the distant land back. Maybe realize that you're an older son. Maybe you don't like the fact that the church should be about reaching those that we would consider as less than. Maybe confess that you have this pride of self-sufficiency. I don't know. Maybe just simply confess that you've missed the Father's heart. I don't know. But just use this time to connect with God. Lord, I thank you for your word. That it is alive and active. That it is sharper than any double-edged sword. That it does pierce. That it does tear down. That it does build up. Lord, I thank you so much that you were, from a worldly view, reckless with your love. In fact, even the Bible says that like when people would see the cross, it would be a stumbling block because they would say, why would God do that? That's pretty reckless. We praise you, Lord. We give you glory and honor. Father, I pray that now you, through your Holy Spirit, would minister to your sons and daughters. We are prone, we are all prone to wander. Lord, would you come find us and lead us and draw us? Holy Spirit, would you do what you do best? In Christ's name, amen.